The unsurpassed, penetrating, and perfect truth is seldom met with, even in a hundred thousand myriad kalpas. Now we can see and hear it. We can remember and accept it. I vow to make the Buddha's truth one with myself. Homage to the Buddha. Homage to the Dharma. Homage to the Sangha. Welcome to everyone, those who have been with us for the introductory retreat this weekend, and to everyone else as well. As this is the final day of the retreat, I'd like to highlight some essential aspects of our practice and try to tie together a little bit of what you learned and done this weekend. For those with more experience, I find it helpful to go back to the beginning, as it were, from time to time, to cultivate what we call beginner's mind or first mind, that which brings us to practice in the first place and keeps bringing us back and bringing us back. There's a verse from the ordination ceremony that says, the merit of first mind is the widest and most completely fathomless. Even if Buddhas explain it fully, such explanation can never be enough. And as I see first mind or beginner's mind, it's wide open. Um, That's one aspect of it anyway. It's wide open and ready to try something new. We follow in the footsteps of Shakyamuni Buddha, the honored one of the Shakya clan. He was born as Prince Siddhartha Gotama and spent his early life in a magnificent palace surrounded by lush gardens and filled with the finest of everything the world could offer. He was well-educated as well as proficient in athletics and military skills and he was the heir to his father's throne. He was married to a beautiful wife who had given birth to a fine son. In short, he had everything a human being could wish for. And yet, something seemed to be niggling him. There must be more. Legend has it that one day he left the palace where he had spent his whole life up till then, and explored the nearby town where he first saw an old person, then a sick person, then a corpse, and finally a monk in robes. He saw for the first time the suffering that living beings experience and a possible way to cope with it. And he resolved to undertake the way of monastic training in order to find an answer to the problem of suffering, the merit of first mind. Prince Siddhartha left the palace one night in the dead of night, heartbroken at leaving his family. He shaved his head and began his life as a monk. At that time, Asceticism was the predominant form of spiritual practice in India. Monks starved themselves, 
went naked and let their hair grow long and matted with the idea that mortification of the body would liberate the spirit. The future Buddha tried these methods and even surpassed all his teachers. However, none of his efforts resolved the question, the problem of suffering. Nearly dead from starvation, he took some food and went to sit under a large tree, the Bodhi tree, determined to sit there in meditation until he either died or understood the truth. Finally, after a week of intense sitting, at dawn, with the rising of the morning star, he had a great realization of truth. And he had the compassion to go out among us beings and share it with us. Sometime later, the Buddha, the awakened one, spoke to his disciples and said this, and I'm going to apologize at the beginning for the repetition in it. Uh, there was a lot of repetition in the early Buddhist scriptures because they were oral tradition and they were passed down by speaking. And so the repetition helped that. So here's what he said. There is the unborn, uncreated, unformed, unoriginated. Therefore, there is an escape from the born, created, formed, originated. If it were not for the unborn, uncreated, unformed, there would be no escape from the born, created, formed, originated. But because there is the uncreated, unformed, unborn, unoriginated, there is an escape. There is liberation from the born, the created, the originated. It's our clinging to things, ideas, and people, the born, the formed, the originated, that gives rise to our suffering. What is born must die. What is created must fall apart. Letting go of our clinging and turning towards that which is greater than ourselves and our attachments is how we find liberation from that suffering. The regular practice of meditation shows us how to let go of everything. This is the heart of our practice. We're here to find and share the unborn, uncreated, undying. We come to practice, like Shakyamuni Buddha did, with beginner's mind, wishing to find the causes of suffering and the way to the cessation of suffering. Because the unborn, uncreated, unformed exists, there is an escape from the born, formed, originated. Those of us fortunate enough to find ourselves in favorable circumstances may not believe that we really suffer. But we can think of suffering not only as the extreme distress we sometimes see on the nightly news, but as the dissatisfaction 
the chronic dissatisfaction that shadows everyone's daily lives. When the computer won't function as it should. When the cat throws up in the middle of the night. When someone cuts us off in traffic. Standing in line at the supermarket or anywhere. Now consider what brought you here this weekend. One of our late elders described the movement towards spiritual training as push and pull. Something moves us. The push of suffering shoves us into doing something we might never have considered otherwise. Spending the weekend sitting looking at a wall and cleaning up the kitchen when we could have been skiing or swimming or boating, right? Or a glimpse of what the Buddha described, the unborn, uncreated. A glimpse of that draws us towards practice, or a little of both. In my case, I'd had a periodic interest in meditation since my late teens, for no reason I can put my finger on. But there it was. I came across a book on meditation, but it advised not starting unless you intend to make a lifetime commitment to it. And I put that book right back on the shelf. (laughs) Then the Beatles learned to meditate, and there it was again. (laughs) However, at that time, access to meditation teachers was limited, and I forgot about it again. I once learned to meditate from a lady on TV, but that didn't last long either. Following a succession of deaths of loved ones, I finally landed at a Zen temple where I received meditation instruction and where I first heard about Reverend Master G.U. Kennett. Soon I met her and saw in her the embodiment of a life of meditation, and I wanted to learn how to do that too. This brings me to the second essential facet of our practice, and that is meditation. I can't find words enough to emphasize the importance of consistent daily meditation practice. Coming to a weekend retreat is a very good start, and it's necessary to keep going. This is uh, not a spectator sport. It's participatory. The key is consistency. To make meditation a daily part of our lives takes some doing at first, but it's worth it. It's helpful to set yourself up with a specific place for meditation, someplace out of the way. It doesn't need to be a whole room, but you can find a space where you live that's kind of away from the main traffic flow and the main activity centers and set up your seat whether it's a chair, cushion, or bench. That's all you need. It can be helpful to set up a small altar with a Buddha statue or image as a visual reminder of your practice, if you wish. Once you have your space, choose a time of day that works with your schedule. If you're a morning person, sit in the morning. If you're a night owl, sit in the evening. Of course, you can do both, or sit at noon. 
But having a set time is as helpful as having a place. Then commit yourself to sitting at that time. I recommend for those new to the practice, starting with five minutes. Everyone can keep a commitment to sit for five minutes, I believe. Then when that becomes comfortable, stretch it to 10, then 15, and so on. We don't sit longer than 45 minutes without a break. But in my experience, 30 minutes is just fine. And if you can spare 15 at most, that's fine too. On those days when you miss, which will happen, rather than beating yourself up, you can bow to your sitting place and renew your resolve to continue regardless. It's a joyful thing. One of our congregation once mentioned that if she missed her day's meditation, she'd sit on the edge of her bed at night and meditate for a couple of minutes before lying down to sleep. So you can find skillful ways. Returning to the practice of not beating ourselves up. Self-criticism is a favorite activity of the judgmental mind. It's common to think that punishing ourselves with criticism will help us do better in the future. In my experience, it doesn't. In fact, it has the opposite effect of discouraging me. Being kind to myself, which doesn't mean rewarding myself with chocolate bonbons for wrongful behavior, helps me accept all kinds of mistakes and learn from them. Being kind to myself means facing the mistake Yes, I did this, and I'm sorry, and resolving to do better. In the words of the late Zen master Shunryu Suzuki Roshi, we're perfect as we are, and there's always room for improvement. In the words of the scripture we recite each morning, we're always going on beyond, always becoming Buddha. One of the most helpful aspects of meditation is that it's portable. It doesn't need to end when we leave our seats. We can take it with us wherever we go. We can practice heedfulness, attentive awareness, throughout all the activities of our daily lives. The late head of our order, Reverend Master Daisui McPhillamy, left us with this wonderful book called Buddhism from Within. He was devoted to the practice of what he called every minute meditation, which he described in five simple steps. And I'll read them to you straight from the book. Number one, do one thing at a time. Number two, pay full attention to what you are doing. Number three, When your mind wanders to something else, bring it back. Number four, repeat step number three a few hundred thousand times, or a few million times, whatever's necessary. And number five, and if your mind keeps wandering to the same thing over and over, stop for a minute and pay attention to the distraction. Maybe it's trying to tell you something.
So our morning service starts us off on our day as we focus on chanting scripture and making vows. Well, first we have our morning meditation, then we have our morning service, chanting scripture and making vows, and then we go on to begin the day's work. Think of times in your day when you're able to do just one thing and devote your full attention to it. For me, driving a car is one of those times. Perhaps the sense of possible danger sharpens my awareness. And think of what distracts you. We didn't have a TV at home until I was five or six, but the radio would play all day. My mother was musical, and she enjoyed listening to the radio and singing along to the tunes. This is a minor distraction, but a distraction nonetheless, as music can take us far away from where we are at the moment, mopping the floor or washing the dishes. The Internet and smartphones are sources of seemingly endless distraction. Hours can go by. Not that they're evil. They can be useful tools when we use them attentively and carefully, in moderation. I find it interesting and helpful to note the things that distract me, and again, without judgment, letting them go as soon as I notice. And to note where the distractions lead. For me, it's a type of mental numbness, similar to the numbness brought about by certain drugs. Is this what I want? No. The next essential facet of practice is the precepts, or ethical conduct. In the words of the late Zen teacher, John Daido Lori, the precepts contain the totality of the teachings of the Buddha Dharma. He goes on to say that this is not immediately apparent. So we go into the precepts on faith as into a dark room. And recall, there is an unborn, uncreated, unformed. This is what brings us to the precepts and helps us to follow them. I didn't come here for morality. I came for meditation. And I can still recall thinking something like, well, if precepts are part of the deal, okay, I guess I can accept that. So you start where you are. You can meditate all day, and then if you go out and rob a bank, that meditation is of no benefit to you or to anyone else. We have 16 precepts in our tradition. First are the three refuges, to take refuge in Buddha, in Dharma, in Sangha. Buddha is truth, reality, that which is greater than ourselves, the unborn, uncreated. On a personal level, you can think of it as Shakyamuni Buddha, the great teacher who showed us the truth. Dharma is the teaching that points to truth. You can think of it as the scriptures, and you can find it in the daily life of practice. It's visible in the words and actions of monks and lay trainees who put the teachings into practice. And they are the Sangha refuge. 
What drew me to my master was seeing the embodiment of Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha in person and in action. Next are the three pure precepts to cease from evil, that is, thoughts, words, and deeds that cause harm to self or others, to do only good, that which is of benefit to self or others, to do good for others. At this point in my training, doing good for others means learning to remove myself from the center of the universe. Just this morning, I had a good opportunity to work on this. I had to sit with the fact that fresh air is essential for meditation and for most people's comfort. Never mind that for me, it feels like a chill draft. And why are these people opening all the doors and having these fans on when I'm freezing? (laughs) So by the end of the meditation period, I had actually let that go. And this takes some doing, even with a small, silly thing like this. It takes some doing. Considering the welfare of other beings over and above our personal inclinations. These three pure precepts open out into the ten great precepts. And some are familiar, not killing, not stealing, not lying. And others are less common, not to sell the wine of delusion, often stated as not to give or take intoxicants, not to speak against others, not to be mean in giving, not to be proud of oneself and devalue others, not to be angry and not to defame the three treasures. What it boils down to is what is sometimes called the golden rule. Treat others as we would like to be treated ourselves. I won't go into these precepts in any more depth. We do this during the week-long keeping of the ten precepts retreat in the spring. Now I'll just say that these precepts are not commandments, but are gateways to the truth. We keep them by our own free will. Again, we don't punish ourselves when we find that we haven't kept them perfectly. Intention matters. When we fall down, we renew our resolve to pick ourselves up and keep going. In keeping the precepts, we are behaving as bodhisattvas, those who wish for and work for the end of suffering for all beings. So, these are four essential aspects of our practice. The existence of something greater than ourselves. Daily meditation practice. Every minute meditation and the precepts. I'll mention briefly some other teachings and practices that support these four. There are the four wisdoms, charity, tenderness, or kind speech, benevolence, and sympathy. Great Master Dokun called these the four ways bodhisattvas have of embracing beings. And they are the signs of enlightenment, ways in which meditation shows itself in our daily lives and our dealings with others. Then there are the six paramitas, generosity, ethical conduct, patience, 
joyful effort or diligence, meditation, and wisdom or wise discernment. Notice that these lists both begin with giving, charity, generosity. The Buddha taught giving to people new to his teaching. That was the first thing he is said to have taught. We can give in many ways, by listening, for example, giving our attention to the person speaking to us. We can give the benefit of the doubt, which also involves benevolence. We can give ourselves wholeheartedly to the task at hand, whatever that may be. So, that's our visit or revisit to the basic aspects of our practice. And I'll close as I began with this quote from the ordination ceremony. The merit of first mind is the widest and most completely fathomless. Even if Buddhas explain it fully, such explanation can never be enough. Thank you all for being here today. <laughs>